This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre. Thank you all for coming along today. My name is Daniela Nidic and I'm from the University of Sydney, Sydney Pharmacy School. And it's my absolute pleasure to be here today and welcome you to our session entitled Post-Market Safety Communications and Emerging Risks of Medicines. Are we getting it right? Just before I give a brief overview for the session today, I'll just tell you briefly in terms of how we're going to run this um, workshop today. Uh, so we'll have, um, uh, we'll have three speakers. Each of them will present approximately 15 minutes or so. So there will be opportunities to ask questions after individual presentations. And hopefully, if I manage to keep my speakers in line and on time, we should have 20 to 30 minutes for our panel discussion. And Roger from uh, uh, NPS Medicine Wise will actually help us out with that part of the session. So. Um, why are we here today talking about post-market safety communications? And most importantly, are we getting it right? Uh, just to really provide a flavour in terms of some of the common issues that we come across in terms of post-market surveillance is that the fact that we know that medicines are used to treat symptoms, diseases, but at the same time, we know that once medicines are used at a large scale, that is in large number of populations of people, um, we commonly are uh, faced with harmful side effects or, uh, associated with medicine use. And that imposes a substantial burden to our public health in terms of patient safety and healthcare. And just to really illustrate a point in there, we also know that um, harmful side effects in medicine also impose a major burden of costs. And um, one of the reports from, based from Australia, conducted, um, published a couple of years ago, and led by Olivia Ruffert from University of South Australia, showed that it does cost a major um, does place a major burden in the Australian setting, so over $1 billion approximately. If we look at what is the you know, difference in terms of um, comparisons, if you look at the US, we also know that um, uh, you know, more deaths are observed from medications than cars, and that's just one illustration of how, you know, what, what is the major burden of medication-related harms. So to really mitigate some of those issues, in Australia and internationally, quite often we have regulatory bodies issuing where, um, a range of warnings to really, with the, I guess, with the ultimate aim to prevent this harm. But at present, we really have a limited comparison in terms of um, uh, differing approaches used in Australia and internationally in terms of evaluating the effectiveness of these approaches in terms of safety advisories. And to tackle some of those issues and really help us understand what works and what doesn't work, uh, we are currently... Um, and when I say we, it's really two key people. It's part of this international collaborative project, which is uh, funded by National Health and Medical Research Council in Australia and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. And this program will work, which is led by Barbara Minces, at, based at the University of Sydney, and Barbara is one of our panellist members and speakers today, together with, her, with the colleague from um, Canada, Colin Dormuth. And basically, you can see, as part of this effort, there's a number of groups locally um, in Australia and internationally from Canada, um, US, as well as Europe. So what are some of the things that we are hoping to untangle as part of this um, rather ambitious piece of work? Firstly, some of the steps that involve include um, establishing databases of advisories in Australia, Canada, uh, the UK and Europe. I think Denmark is the country that we're targeting. Is that correct, Barbara? Yeah. And I think we'll hear some of the preliminary findings from this uh, program or work today. We're also conducting a systematic review on research on various outcomes of advisories. We'll also hear um, a little bit about the issues around regulatory policies and some of the planned analysis that we hope to 
undertake in Australia and uh, compare with international databases. In addition to that, we'd like to really look into natural experiments of discordance national decisions to examine various effects of these safety advisories. And lastly, con um, to conduct important qualitative research on awareness and attitudes amongst prescribers and consumers in terms of safety advisory. And hopefully, once we do all of this, we will get an insight in terms of what is needed to develop a checklist or rapid assessment tool to guide some of our decisions. So, um, as you would imagine, this is quite a complex undertake, and I think this figure nicely showcases what actually needs to be considered when we uh, go from that journey of evidence of new safety concerns emerging, which then leads on to decisions to issue advisories. And then if you come at the bottom of this figure, in terms of what is the impact or uh, in terms of health outcomes, you can see that a lot of things can actually happen in between, and unpacking these individually is really important. So in interest of time, I'm going to stop here, and I'll take this opportunity to um, introduce our first speaker for the session today, and that is Alice Basali. She's a PhD student at the University of Sydney, Charles Perkins Centre, Sydney Pharmacy School, and she'll really kick off this session by providing a nice overview on what we mean by different safety advisories and some of the issues of regulatory policy. So Alice, please come along. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Um, yes, yeah, so as Danny said, I'm doing my PhD um, with Barbara Mitzes on this project, and the part that I'm looking at is uh, really interested in the regulatory policy differences between the different jurisdictions. My colleague Lucy will go into a lot more detail about our methods, but I just wanted to give you an, uh, an overview of what we're trying to achieve here and why we would conduct an international comparison, what's useful about that what we mean by safety advisories, and some of the challenges in comparing different countries and regulatory environments. And then I'll talk at the end a little bit about uh, how, how can we sort of conceptualise this idea of regulatory power and what do, what do we mean, what determines whether a regulator is actually powerful or not. Um, but in a, in a nutshell, uh, as I said, Lucy will talk in more detail, but we've, we've now got a database of 10 years' worth of safety advisories from the UK, Canada, US and Australia, and we've started to compare those and to try and pick them apart and say, well, are they similar or are they different? Um, and so I'll be using a few examples from the database to just explain what we've done. So safety advisory is basically a regulatory agency communication, and it's warning or notifying about a safety issue. Some um, some advisories are just saying there's a possible issue, it's not necessarily a confirmed issue, and some may be actually saying that there is no problem, that there's been concern about a particular issue, but, it, but there isn't actually a problem. Um, and they often have a function of informing but also encouraging further adverse event reporting and awareness of potential issues. And so their purpose is to communicate, but their, um, their function really is about public protection and the public, they relate to the public protection role of regulators. And we can't look at them in isolation. We have to think about the pre-market processes as well as uh, you know, other post-market activities that might be going on. So if a drug, as an extreme example, if a drug is never approved, then there will never be a safety advisory. Or if it's withdrawn you know, because the safety issues are so great, then you know, there may not be a need for an advisory. And we didn't include notices of withdrawal in our project. But how can we compare these four jurisdictions? Is it a fair thing to compare them? So we know that there are big differences in population. Um, there's differences in their 
use of pharmaceuticals and on spending on pharmaceuticals. They have different reimbursement systems. And just the, the, the sheer volume, I think, does make, some, make for some difference between the countries. But there are also differences in um, perhaps culture and societal expectations. So in the US, we know it's a more litigious environment that could perhaps influence the communications that the regulator puts out and the kinds of concerns that it might have in its mind. Um, there's differences in terms of direct-to-consumer advertising and perhaps how much misinformation there is that uh, regulators might feel compelled to, um, to counteract. And there's also other aspects of the regulatory environment about their legislation, what their mandate is, and I'll just put one example here of uh, how much of their budget is funded by industry user fees, which has an impact on um, some aspects of what they're able to do and uh, you know, what their priorities can be in some circumstances. Um, so what we're really looking at is concordance and discordance. And what do we mean by that? So this is an example from our database where we've grouped together advisories that are of a similar nature. And really our process was to try and put things together as much as possible because we we're looking for concordance um, in order to really... We didn't want to say things were discordant just for the sake of it. We wanted to give as much opportunity, as much leeway to say, look, this is actually talking about the same thing. And at the beginning, I guess we thought it would be quite straightforward. It turned out to be a lot more complicated than we, than we realised initially. So, you know, that sort of three months blew out to six months and possibly a little bit longer and there's still some further issues that we need to kind of work on. But here you can see for um, neonatal drug withdrawal syndrome with antipsychotics, all of the regulators in our study have put out some kind of safety communication. Um, in the US and Canada and the UK, it's an alert. In Australia, it was a bulletin article. So we call this a concordant situation, but you can see there that the dates are a little bit different. So between February in 2011 and September in 2011, it's sort of like seven-month difference in the advisories coming out. So the types of advisories we've included are alerts, as I mentioned, so postings on websites, um, sometimes email alerts that are included as part of those letters to uh, doctors, dear health professional letters, and in some jurisdictions those are um, documents that, the, uh, that are agreed with the regulator and posted on their websites. Public articles, um, the bulletin articles, so for in Australia we have medicine safety update that was formerly the ADRAC bulletin. Um, and in the UK they have drug safety update, which we've classed as an alert because it's sort of a, a they did previously have an alert and then they moved previously had separate alerts and bulletins and then they've sort of combined them together and that's really their principal form of communication about risk. So we've called that an alert and investigations. And we didn't include alerts that were about quality or um, dosing at administration areas, so only really adverse drug-related reactions. And so are we just talking about a difference of Interpret are we talking about the way we say it? Is it just a different vehicle for the communication? Is it just, you know, potatoes and potatoes? Is it that sort of thing? Um, and I had to put this slide here because although we don't have the biggest regulator in the world, we do have the biggest potato. It's about 200, <laughs> 200 kilometres north if anyone feels like a little drive. <laughs> so here's another example. Um, antipsychotics in dementia and strokes, so which is, you know, still a very topical issue about the overprescribing of antipsychotics in um, elderly people. And um, 
here we can see that the US is discordant, so there were no advisories on this topic in the US, although they did have a warning about mortality, increased mortality. Um, and the other thing you can see here is that we've grouped together, in the UK there was an alert about, it was about antipsychotics as a class, in Canada and Australia it was about risperidone. But there's a really big gap here between 2009 and 2015, so... Um, and again, this is something that we'll look into in, a little, in the secondary stage of the analysis as to why are there such differences and what, what does that mean. Digging into this a little bit further, um, when risperidone was first listed on the PBS in 2005, the warnings about stroke and increased mortality had previously happened and so those, if that information was in the product information at the time of approval for that indication. But what's interesting here is that in 2015, um, the Australian advisory and the Canadian advisory came out on the basis of studies submitted by the sponsor, which found an increased risk of cerebrovascular events in mixed dementia, vascular and mixed dementia, compared to those with uh, people taking it for Alzheimer's disease. And as a result, the indication was uh, limited to treatment of up to 12 weeks and only for people with um, moderate severe, severe dementia or of Alzheimer's type. But a very similar indication actually happened in 2009, so six years earlier in the UK. And I'm not quite sure uh, why that is, you know, why there was this only six weeks and when it was first indicated in the UK for dementia, it was already restricted to Alzheimer's disease um, and aggression in Alzheimer's disease. So that's an interesting difference. I don't quite know, you know, what actually happened there. But uh, so even when we have uh, similarities in terms of the advisories, there's, there's still potential discordance uh, of another type. This is another example, um, and here we we're looking at the drug denosumab, which is for osteoporosis, and this is discordant. Obviously, there's a lot of missing information. The ones down the bottom there, are, I didn't really talk about this, but they're investigation reports. So in some jurisdictions, when um, there's a potential signal that's investigated, the, uh, the report on that investigation is actually provided as, a, as an advisory on the website. And um, that's particularly in Canada, we have a lot of these where they're called summary safety reviews. And basically they're saying there was this potential signal, we looked into it, um, but you know there's nothing going on. So. Uh, it doesn't progress to an actual alert. Um, but even when we take those away, we still do have quite a few uh, missing, inf quite a few gaps. So what's going on here? We tried to figure out uh, what would be the obvious reasons for discordance. So could it be that the drug wasn't approved in that jurisdiction? We looked into that, we took that into account. Um, could it be a difference in decision-making by the regulators where they're actually making a decision about whether to inform the community and how to do so? And so if you look particularly, you can see there's a gap in the US and there's also a gap in Australia for atypical fracture with denosumab. And um, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about how we can explain and what the data tells us. Uh, it gives us a bit of an insight into these regulatory processes. So. Here, uh, for the denosumab example in Australia, it appears that the PI, the product information, was updated with that risk of atypical femoral fracture. And then there was just this very little note that probably uh, we wouldn't say was the main subject of this advisory, so we would, in a way, call this discordant. Although the product information was updated, um, we don't see the product information as a safety advisory because it's kind of hard to keep up to date with changes in the product information. Um, so another example is 
in the US and really to understand some of the differences, I'm just going to use this as an opportunity to discuss what's happened uh, since 2004 when there, I don't know, I don't remember when the GFC was, but there was a global regulatory crisis back in 2004 with Vioxx and that really created a lot of, um, you know, a lot of introspection and reviews of regulatory oversight at that time. And in the US, the, oops, in the US, the FDA asked the Institute of Medicine to undertake a review, and they looked at the FDA processes and said, and identified a range of concerns, in particular about ambiguous legislative authority and a lack of reliable post-market data about the risks and benefits of medicines. And so the FDA undertook quite a uh, substantial review of its processes at that time, and that really focused on three different areas, um, scientific, and scientific and technical capacity. So in terms of their post-market data, they realised that you know, they were relying quite heavily, I guess, on adverse drug event reporting, spontaneous reporting, and on uh, you know, post-market studies where they existed, but that they needed to increase that capacity. Uh, they also looked at their organisational capacity in terms of the numbers of staff and, and the uh, communications within the agency. And they also reviewed their legislative mandate and decision-making authority. And these th three things, I think, are really the cornerstone of what makes regulators powerful and what's often considered in terms of regulatory power and capacity. Um, so they, actually, there was a new legislation, the, the FDAA, so... The new, the new legislation gave them further powers to uh, require changes to product information. Before that, they could only request them. Um, it gave them new authority to require risk management and evaluation strategies. So when a drug was listed on the market, it had to have, it had to have these sort of extra programs in place to manage safety concerns. Um, and there was also a big emphasis on safety communications. And so in terms of the risk evaluation, risk evaluation and mitigation strategies, with what they call the risk management plans in the US, so in Australia we have risk management plans and the same in Europe, but in the US they have risk evaluation and mitigation strategies, and most of those risk evaluation or REMS strategies include a communications plans. So we hadn't originally included those in our database, but we did go back and look into them for um, some of these drugs. And we found that that's actually explained the gap in terms of denosumab particularly. So the risk evaluation and mitigation strategies and risk management plans really take into account this whole life cycle of the drug, which was also something that started to be considered much more after Vioxx, that was there really adequate monitoring post-marketing so starting from before approval, looking at the clinical trials information, um, to the time of authorisation, what sort of information is there about safety, what are the uncertainties at that time and how can they be managed, should the drug be approved or not with those uncertainties or with, those, uh, advert with that particular safety and efficacy profile, um, and what kind of monitoring is required in the early post-market period to ensure that there is actually, uh, that those concerns, if they do exist, are managed and monitored and detected and, you know, appropriate decisions are then made. So this is good because uh, it does, the pros of this are that you do have this much more life cycle approach, you're able to 
monitor things throughout. There have also been some studies that show that, um, oh, sorry, there should be, there are also policies which is related to this life cycle management where a drug can be approved, for example, in some jurisdictions with conditional approval where it's approved early, there's an accelerated review process and it's approved with conditions for additional monitoring. Um, and some studies have shown that those drugs that are approved with accelerated approval processes do have higher, uh, are more likely to have safety advisories or to have a back box warning in the US uh, after approval. Um, so that's a potential, I think, misuse of this policy of life cycle management. So as I said, we went back and we found that there were these direct-to-health professional communications and so that explained the US, uh, the gap there. So as I mentioned, um, I'm interested in what are the components of regulatory power um, and we've talked already about the scientific and technical capacity, organisational capacity, and that really also includes the number of people that uh, an, an agency has to do this work and whether it's done by the agency or it's done as a requirement of industry to do their own post-market surveillance and report back. Um, but there are some other things that I've mentioned, societal expectations, trust and reputation, what do people expect from their regulator, how aware they are of what the regulator's doing, um, how likely are they to sue, you know, I mean, the Vioxx, there were so many class actions for that drug. And there are economic and political factors that can also affect uh, the actions of regulators which are decided by governments. And the degree of accountability to the public, how much of the public involved in the decisions that are made. And finally, there's commercial influence, influence and interests and how they impact on different aspects of regulatory power, um, particularly at this economic and political level. And this is an interesting quote, I think, from the UK House of Commons when they did a review of pharmaceutical industry um, influence on decision on regulation of drugs, where they're really noting that government has a dilemma um, and that sometimes they're serving two masters at the same time. They're trying to balance these things like trade agreements, economic uh, opportunity for, for the country, R&D, budgets, that sort of thing, and at the same time, they have health priorities, so it's, it's quite a, a sort of honest quote, I think. <laughs> um, and as I said before, uh, the cost recovery component, I think, also potentially has an impact on capacity of the agency. And this was from the recent review of medicines and medical devices regulation, um, and the context was that potential changes to accepting evaluations from overseas uh, for new drug approvals that where the agency is quite dependent on the funds received, the fees received for that, that they might actually find themselves with a shortfall if, there were, if, those, if those fees were reduced because of these more streamlined approval processes. So I guess in summary, We've got a lot of information, but we've still got a lot of questions um, that we need to look into into more detail to understand whether we want to have that flexibility of decision-making between regulators. You know, do we want the same thing in Australia as elsewhere? Um, and, you know, what does that mean for prescribers and consumers? My great pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Lucy Perry. Lucy is currently doing her Master's at Research at the University of Sydney, um, together with Barbara Minces and other colleagues, and she'll provide us some preliminary data in terms of um, post-market safety communications and comparisons across different countries. Thank you, Lucy.
So hello everyone, I'm Lucy. I'm going to take you through a 10-year overview of the safety advisories in the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom and Australia. So first of all, I'd just like to acknowledge the funding provided by the NHMRC and the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and I'd also like to acknowledge the team members responsible for the data that I'll be sharing with you today. So today there's actually been little international comparative research into safety advisories and safety communications. And if we're going to answer, are we getting it right? We need to understand how national medicines regulators are using safety advisories to communicate emergent risk associated with medicines. In order to do this, uh, to understand it at a local and an international level, we need empirical data. Once we have some empirical data, we can actually take a bit of a deep dive into some important questions. At what frequency do national medicines regulators issue safety advisories? What are the characteristics of the safety advisories that we're seeing being issued? And most importantly, how often do national medicines regulators differ in their decisions to issue a safety advisory? So in order to begin to answer these questions, we build a database. So this database um, includes the national medicines regulators from the United States, the Food and Drug Administration, Canada, Health Canada, the United Kingdom, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, and Australia, uh, the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Uh, we did choose these four countries based on having similar demographics, similar population health, uh, similar medical tradition, and arguably equal access to new pharmaceuticals. And safety advisory was considered eligible if it was issued by a national medicines regulator, available on their website or on a website archive of some kind. So once we found these advisories, we ran them through some inclusion and exclusion criteria. First of all, they had to be a prescription drug or drug class. They needed to address at least one safety concern, and they had to be between 2007 and 2016. We did exclude manufacturing and quality issues, we also uh, exclude administration and medication errors. That is, that the safety risk had to be inherent to the medicine when it was used properly. We also excluded OTC medications, and we excluded withdrawals. Now, we did collect that information to get the whole picture of what happened, but it's not included in this particular database. Our methods. Uh, we used duplicate independent screening and data extraction. We then undertook duplicate coding to standardize the data, because as you can imagine, we've got four very different data sets we had to work with and combine. We utilized the ATC coding and the metro coding dictionaries. Once we actually had standardized this data, uh, we actually grouped advisories by the drug or the drug class and the harm that has been associated with it. And we termed these drug risk issues. And we undertook all of this work in red. So as we started working with the data, we began to notice that regulators were issuing very similar types of communications, but they're calling them very different things. So in order for us to actually be able to analyze this data, we created some really general uh, categories. Alice has covered some of these before, but just to refresh you, we have the direct healthcare professional communications that are advisories that were directly disseminated to prescribers. The alerts are really uh, those advisories appearing on websites, sometimes an email blast you may get, Investigations kind of covered the early communications, updates, ongoing analysis, and then outcomes of those investigations, be it yes, there is an issue, or no, there's not an issue. Bulletins really covered those, those newsletters, uh, drug safety update, 
uh, you're probably all familiar with ADRAC bulletin and the medicine safety update. And in terms of public, that really covered those public-facing advisories and those media um, communications. Um, we did note the issue of the risk evaluation and mitigation strategies. Um, these are actually publicly available on the FDA website. Uh, none of the other regulators do allow public access to the risk management plans. When we actually had a look at these, we could see it actually, they actually included emergence um, safety information. So we undertook a review to see if any of the REMS data met our inclusion-exclusion criteria. And then we undertook a sensitivity analysis, which I will share with you in a bit. So we did have a few hurdles when we started looking at this data. We had to determine what a unit of analysis was. Uh, what we could see when we were looking at the regulators side by side is that one regulator may issue just a DHPC and about an issue, and then we'd have a look at another regulator, and they'd be issuing multiple communications in quite quick succession. So we'd see an alert, a DHPC, an alert, perhaps a media, some kind of advisory. And we thought, well, we can't actually compare them like for like at that level. So what we decided to do was have a rule where if there was an advisory that occurred, and every advisory that occurred within 30 days post that first advisory became a single advisory group, and we turned everything else, the communications within that advisory. That way we could compare like for like. In terms of grouping, we did have some issues. Some regulators communicate about classes or groups of drugs. Um, we use the word group and class quite flexibly because some would actually dictate a specific therapeutic class, others would just say ADHD medications. Um, and then others would communicate about single drugs. So when we took, undertook a grouping procedure, we had to consider this. So what we did is if there was a class advisory in existence, we grouped the single drug advisories underneath so we could see the entire uh, picture of, of the advisory group. And then we had, on um, review, we actually had a look at what the regulators considered their most formal forms of communication. Um, across the four regulators, we had the DHPCs and we had the alerts. Um, so what we decided to do was actually undertake a review of the utilisation of these minor versus the major communications. So how often they were using direct um, communications to prescribers and these alerts versus these investigations, some newsletter put out, or um, a sort of media advisory. So, we have a database. Let's start looking at what we found. So this is an overview of the safety advisories issued between 2007 and 2016. Uh, you can see overall and per country. There's some interesting trends here. First of all, you can see the pink line and the blue line, which is the UK and the and Australia. They sort of maintain a relatively stable number of advisories per year over the time period. The red line, which is USA, we can see, despite a small blip, generally speaking, they've actually decreased in the number of advisories issued. Then if we look at the green line, which is Canada, we can see from 2010 onwards, there's a sudden increase and a continued increase. And telling, most telling of all actually, is if you look at that pink line, which is Australia, 
Generally speaking, they issued the least number of advisories over that period. So if we go into this in a little bit of detail, we actually identified 1,826 communications over that 10-year period, and they formed 1,442 advisories. If we go down to the country level, we can see that the United Kingdom actually issued 469 advisories formed from 577 communications. Conversely, if we look at Australia, they only issued 221 advisories over that same period, made up of 232 communications. That's actually less than 50% of the UK. And then if we look at the United States and Canada, they actually are remarkably similar in their numbers of advisories and communications. So then we actually have a, decided to have a look at this major and minor split. The UK, if you notice here, actually utilise those major communication types, 99% of the advisories. Conversely, we look at Australia. They use major communication types and only 29% of their advisories. So now we can look at the characteristics. So we decided to have a look at the focus of the advisory, that is whether it was targeting a single drug, a drug class or group, multiple drugs or drug-drug interactions. Um, from, here, from the data, we saw that 70% of these advisories were targeting single drugs. And then the very small groups are covering the other categories. But what's really interesting to note here, that despite the disparity in the frequencies we saw in the last table, if you go across the countries and down the categories, they all have relatively similar splits in terms of what they focused on, in terms of single drugs, classes, groups of drugs, and then drug interactions. So then we can look a bit further at the communication types per country. So if we start from the left, we see the US. They had a primary focus on using alerts um, over the 10 years. Uh, they didn't actually issue a bulletin, hence the missing column there. If we look at Canada, they actually use a quite interesting mix and different targets for their advisories. And you can see actually they have 20% of their advisories being publicly focused. Um, as we mentioned before, in terms of the UK, they did issue a bulletin, a newsletter, but it really just replicated the alerts. So we chose not to double count them, hence the missing column there. But again, as you saw in that previous data with that 99% of major communications, it, this is reflected in the communication types here. So majority of alerts and majority of DHPCs. And then we come to Australia. And you might see that hot pink question mark up there. We went looking for the DHPCs. We went all over the, web, the TGA website. We couldn't find them. So we asked the TGA, where are these DHPCs? And they said, well, they're not ours. The Australian Marketing Authorization Holder owns those DHPCs. We don't use those to communicate risk. And as you can see, that last one is just a breakdown overall. Look at the drugs that were sort of hot in this 10-year uh, uh, sample. Interestingly, rosiglitazone, pyoglitazone, the glitazones um, ranked in the top three. We know that they had quite a checkered history with cardiac uh, safety issues. We also saw varenicline, uh, smoking cessation aid. Uh, and the immunosuppressants, immunomodulators sort of really filled out the rest of that top ten. And interestingly, interestingly an osteoporosis drug, denosumab, actually featured in, in the 10th position there. 
we also decided to have a look at the drug classes and groups. And surprisingly, influenza vaccines topped the list. You can also see at number 10, we have another vaccine, the human papillomavirus vaccine. Well, this is empirical data, and anecdotally I'm speaking here. I'm assuming that the seasonal nature of influenza vaccines may have something to do with the amount of advisories coming out, and also, generally speaking, the controversial nature of vaccines. And the regulator wanting to perhaps quell some of those concerns. Um, the gadolinium contrast agents and respiratory stimulating agents also featured quite highly up there. But the rest of the drugs you can see there are kind of well known in terms of having changing safety profiles, such as the bisphosphonates and the antipsychotics. We also identified the most frequent harms. Um, as you can see, these body systems are generally seen in relation to adverse drug reactions. The cardiovascular system actually had the most advisories. Um, those are really made up of general cardiac disorders, uh, such as MACE, um, and cardiac arrhythmias, such as the QT prolongation. Um, hypersensitivity, body temperature conditions, and allergies are really the, the major uh, players in the immunological uh, body system. And, and as expected, the hepatic and hepatobiliary uh, body system did feature uh, quite prominently. Uh, infection actually was quite high up there, which I didn't expect. Uh, due to there was quite an awareness, a push for awareness on the use of immunosuppressants and uh, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. We did look at the most serious of harms, death. Um, we didn't, we only really coded for death when there was an explicit uh, mention of death. So this drug causes death, this drug causes fatalities. Um, we did see 74 advisories specifically featuring death. Um, and those were really death not otherwise specified. So they didn't actually mention a specific cause of death. It was just death, uh, followed by neonatal death. So the big question, how often do national medicines regulators differ in their decisions to issue a safety advisory? This graph is incredibly important. It shows how often a medicines regulator chose not to issue a safety advisory despite that drug being on the market in their country. As you can see, the UK and Canada hover around the 50% mark, but the UK uh, was most likely to issue an advisory. Again, conversely, Australia was most likely to not issue an advisory. But we need to have a look at that in the light that the TGA do not own those DHPCs. We don't actually know the precise effect of that on this data set just yet. As we mentioned before, uh, we did undertake that sensitivity analysis to look at how the REMS data actually affected the US in terms of what they actually advised on. Uh, we did identify 12 REMS um, that contained emergent safety information, but that actually only shifted that to a 57% discordance rate. Now if we look comparatively at this data, as I mentioned to you before, we formed those drug risk groups looking at advisories mentioning the same drug or drug class and an associated harm. And it allowed us to directly compare regulators based on the presence or the absence of an advisory about that particular pairing. What we actually found was 676 drug risk issues identified between 2007 and 2016. We decided to have a look at the situation where all of the regulators that had the drug on the market, did they issue an advisory about a particular harm associated with medicine? 
We found only 70 out of those 676 groups met that criteria. That means, in terms of those 676 groups, only 90%, at least 90% of them, had one regulator that did not issue an advisory about the harm associated with the medicine. So we took that a step further and we thought, okay, let's look at the situation where the drug was approved in all of the countries at the same time when the first advisory occurred. We found 570 of those drug risk issues that met that criteria. We then applied the same process. Um, how many situations did we see all four <coughs> regulators issuing a safety advisory about that harm associated with medicine? We found 40 groups. So that means 93% of the time, at least one regulator did not issue a warning about harm associated with medicine. So where does that leave the prescriber? Where does that leave the consumer? Well, we circle back around to the original question, how are we getting it right? From the data, we can see that 90-93% uh, of the drug risk, risk issues identified, at least one regulator did not issue an advisory about harm associated with the medicine. So this means there's potential disparity in the safety information reaching prescribers and reaching consumers. So does, does this mean that there's unsafe use of medicines going on? Right now, based on the empirical data alone, we can't quantify effects and we can't quantify these outcomes. But it does need further research. So some final thoughts. From the data, we can see that national medicines regulators differ in their decisions to communicate <coughs> risk associated with medicines. We can see that the strategies employed differ in terms of frequency and in terms of those characteristics. On the face of it, Australia appears to have issued less advisories. From the comparative data, we can see that there's potential differences in the safety information reaching prescribers and consumers. But from the empirical data alone, we can't actually pinpoint or understand if there's any adverse public health outcomes associated with this. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Lucy. Any questions for Lucy? Thank you very much for that great presentation. I have two questions. One is, um, uh, given that the TGA often utilises the EMA's uh, regulatory policies, I wonder how the trends would compare with the EMA safety advisory. Uh, yeah, so at the moment, we're, we, because this is like obviously the supranational, adds a complexity level in there. So at the moment, uh, we're looking at adding uh, Denmark into the database. And that would hopefully give us and it's sort of a consistency check between what the UK are doing and what Denmark are doing. And hopefully that will give us an idea of something what's happening with the EMA. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's a very challenging though. The supranational is, uh, is something that Alice is you know, having a look at as well. And hopefully that her, her research should tie into this and then we should be able to understand what's happening with those trends. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the other question I have is often uh, safety advisory notices come out. And for instance, I, you know, I remember what, three, four years ago, DPP-4 inhibitors had a yeah. bone fracture warning. Yeah. Um, how often does one warning get followed up? So, you know, as a health professional, we receive all these safety yeah. notices, but how often do they get followed up by new or emerging uh, data? Well, we did have, well, based on uh, the data here, we did actually have a look at the number of, the average number of communications sitting within an advisory. Um, generally speaking, Australia was on the low end of that, and I think it was basically equivalent to one, so one communication for that entire advisory. Um, 
I don't have the data on me to tell you right now, but generally speaking, um, it was quite quite low numbers. They weren't they weren't sort of twos and threes in terms of follow ups. It was very low numbers, which surprised me. It's it's a shame you can't access the risk management plans because as these notices come out, it would make sense that since the RMP is a living document, yeah. um, the actual manufacturer has to continually update how they're going to minimize these risks. But yeah, it's a shame no, you can't access. It, yeah, it definitely needs to be a two way street. I don't think it can purely be on the manufacturer to make those decisions about public health. Thank you very much. In the interest of time, I think we might have to move on. Thank you, Lucy. Okay, our last speaker for today is Dr Barbara Minces. Barbara is a research scientist with expertise in pharmaceutical policy research, both in Canada and Australia, and I think she's well-placed to tell us all about it today. So welcome, Barbara. Okay, thank you. So I'm going to be talking a bit about uh, the next steps in this research project. So coming back to what Daniela gave you a bit of an overview of to begin with. So what um, Alice has presented a bit of how we frame this research and the differences between the regulators, then Lucy has talked about our preliminary results in terms of the actual numbers of advisories. What do they actually mean? So one of the questions is, you know, do these differences matter in terms of um, prescribers and the public's awareness of these harmful effects of medicines, or are they getting their information mainly from other sources? Um, if the answer is sometimes they do make a difference, can we actually identify those situations in which uh, an advisory has been more or less uh, effective, and the point that Natalie just brought out in terms of repeated messages might be one of the clues. Um, that can happen both in different communication methods or as Lucy showed you, there's certain drugs where over time there have been warnings of harm uh, that may be also about different issues over a period of time that might lead to more cautious prescribing. The other question is, um, uh, is it is more better, right? That there's this assumption that having more warnings might lead to better prescribing than less, and then there's the alternate suggestion that uh, if you are telling people that there's a problem all the time, they get warning fatigue and they stop paying attention. And we know there's the problem with the interactions and prescribing databases that people tend to ignore. And then the other side is, what do we know about how patients and prescribers interpret these messages? And uh, you know, are they actually attentive to them in terms of decisions? So I'll just go through, what I'll go through is just the various components of this project and how we're trying to look at some of those issues. So the first thing is, of course, we're not operating as a research project in isolation. We have to look at what did previous research show. And so we're carrying out a systematic review on the intended and unintended effects of these advisories. I've just um, given you an image of one of the controversial areas of research in terms of unintended effects, which was uh, whether there's an, been an increase in suicidality um, after the warnings with children and adolescents and antidepressants. Now, there are three systematic reviews that have already been published, but all of them have various problems. Two of them, um, 
I mean, the problem is partly is when is the end date in terms of the data collection, which is about 2010, and that there is quite a bit of, of research that's happened since. The other is that if you just have a systematic review where you keep, you include every study design, whether it's actually rigorous enough to show a difference or not, you end up at the end saying, well, there was a lot of lousy literature, we couldn't tell whether there was a difference or not. So there is a need to both um, set up criteria ahead of time in terms of what designs can answer the question, and then also assess the quality of the evidence. And then the other issue is, um, to what extent are commercial conflicts of interest actually uh, actually uh, informing the results of studies? So one of the issues that needs to be looked at is was there a financial link between the manufacturer and um, the, uh, the researchers who carried out this review of the effects of advisories. And it comes up, specifically this case is certainly one where in the follow-up literature we've seen um, that there, are, there have been commercial links to the uh, researchers who have looked at these outcomes with antidepressants. Um, that hasn't come up in the systematic reviews. It needs to be in there. So that's one side of it. Um, the other side, which is really the major side of, um, or a major side of what we're looking at, is um, is medicine use affected? So we're we're carrying out two different. Um, uh, I, I guess what we're, we're carrying out two different sort of related studies. So what we mean by is medicine use affected is in situations where there is a discordancy, where one regulator or one or more regulators has put out an advisory and another hasn't, is there are there differential effects on prescribing decisions? So really using this as a natural experiment. And we're, do, we're carrying out interrupted time series analyses for a subset of around 30 advisories that are all about um, drugs that are used in primary care that are high prescribing volume so that you can expect that if there was a difference, you have the sample size needed to look at that. So this is used po using population-based administrative databases. Um, and we're looking both at discordant and concordant cases because there may be differences in concordant cases where the regulators put out advisories uh, in each of the countries, um, there may still be differences in whether or not uh, there's been an effective prescribing. We're taking that and then we're that body of evidence, we're also then going to look in depth in uh, three case studies of specific uh, drug safety issues in which we want to look at patient level analyses. So dig deeper and um, look not only at prescribing decisions, but also be able to look at things like diagnostic testings, like differences that might also occur just in a patient subgroup, and um, ideally at health outcomes. So this is really based on whether we're able to get um, the right kind of data set, but we're certainly hopeful we will. So that's one side of what we're doing. Another is that, so Lucy has presented to you the outcomes in terms of 
numbers and you know most common uh, drugs that were subject of advisories, our next step in terms of this database is to dig a little deeper and to uh, look at also are there differences in the content. So this is just giving you a bit of the an overview of um, how a, a risk might be characterized in terms of uh, is it well established? Is there definitive evidence that uh, there is a very high likelihood of causation? Or is it a situation in which there's suggestive evidence, but we don't really know at this point? Or is the regulator saying, actually, this problem did not exist? So um, particularly comparing across the same drug safety issues, we're interested to know what evidence did the regulators cite? Um, or did they cite evidence in this safety warning? Uh, and then also, uh, how did they characterize the risk? And did they provide specific advice? And what was that advice? So that's digging deeper in terms of a content analysis. And that is also very much linked to the framing that Alice has put together in terms of how does that link with the legislative framework and with regulatory power? So as a third component, said, this is getting complicated, it's going to continue, but is that we're also interested in our in-depth case studies. We'll be looking, actually, in just most likely one of those case studies, carrying out um, a two-pronged media analysis. So looking at the coverage of the drug safety concern in the general media and then also in the scientific literature. And that's, um, in order to do this, we, it does mean that we're care, we will be, at least one of those case studies is one that we know will have been subject to some uh, media coverage. And so the what we're interested in doing is looking at the extent and direction of the media coverage. So was the media coverage actually uh, supporting the same message as the regulator, or was the media com coverage tending to dismiss the harmful effect? Is there um, evidence of alarmism? How exactly did it dis this play out? And then is there an association in time with the regulatory warnings and the media coverage? So again, looking pre and post similarly to what we're doing with prescribing decisions. And then we're interested in knowing who was cited in these articles and um, are, there, are they linked to the manufacturer or to a competitor manufacturer. So um, then, uh, should I say fourthly? I think it's fourthly or maybe I'll be, I'm talking about fifthly. Uh, we're also in those in-depth, um, actually no, in the interrupted time series analyses, We'll also be um, looking at the adverse drug reaction reporting, and that's um, a hypothesis that increased reporting might be a marker for risk awareness, for um, that if the advisory has been successful in raising, um, in, in raising attention to a particular safety concern, we expect to see increased reporting. I realize that that's a fairly complex relationship because if you've had a successful warning and people are not um, prescribing in uh, as risky a situation, you might also have a decrease in the number of adverse events. But um, there is some literature that would supports the hypothesis that it's actually a good marker for uh, awareness raising.
And then in terms of awareness raising as well, so then this is linked to uh, the in-depth case studies, or one of the in-depth case studies <coughs> that, <coughs> sorry, I have a cold. We'll also be carrying out an interview study with prescribers in um, a country with and without this, the uh, regulatory advisory on that specific issue. Looking, so both, um, so, and this is with prescribers who would be expected to be affected. So if, for instance, it's a diabetes drug, we would be interviewing uh, GPs and then also endocrinologists. Um, the idea as well is both to look in general at where prescribers are getting their safety information and then uh, digging down on this particular harmful effect in terms of their awareness and attitudes towards it and also if they're aware of the regulatory warnings or whether there are differences in attitudes in, a, in an environment where there has and has not been a warning. And this is linked as well to focus groups that we'll be doing with, uh, with con affected consumers in, um, it's most likely in, in uh, three countries. So that's another side. So, um, so this is kind of giving you an idea of the main research components in terms of new data collection. Um, now, the other thing I wanted to do is to follow up a little bit on what Lucy raised in terms of missing pieces of the puzzle. So, as she mentioned, there are a lot of differences between the countries in terms of information availability and in terms of the communication means that regulators are, are using. Um, she also mentioned that in Australia, one of the things that we found was missing was Dear Health Professional letters. And so when we went to talk to people at the TGA about it, um, we just, because those letters were not on the website, we asked, could we get a copy of the letters that had gone out in the last decade? And of course, uh, that could be quite difficult because we're talking about thousands of drugs on the market. So what we were told is that um, if we could get a smaller list, perhaps, that it might be more reasonable to try to, for instance, put in a freedom of information request to get those letters. So what we've done is compiled a list of all the drugs that are missing uh, in the sense that one or more of the other countries has put out an advisory, there's no alert on the TGA website, could there perhaps be a Dear Health professional letter that went out? And so there were 437 drug safety issues with no Australian advisories, and these were the sub, the, these were um, on 257 drugs that were marketed by 41 companies. And so we also uh, were pushed to go to the manufacturer first to ask for the letter because in Australia, the letter is the responsibility of the sponsor rather than the TGA. And so we've requested those letters with by email mainly and where we weren't able to get email contact with one company by phone and then we, and sometimes phone follow up with the email, we had repeat requests within two weeks if we didn't have a response. And so um, this is the result. So essentially um, we had 11, 
um, companies that replied in a way that it's, I've given it a green because it was positive in the sense that either each company had the list of their drugs that had been subject to advisories elsewhere and we just asked in this, you know, between 2007 and 2016, did you send out any letters to health professionals? So eight confirmed they had not. Three provided us with the letters that they had sent out. Um, we have had eight situations in which the companies refused to send out the letters. And then the other ones I've marked as orange was they either have had no answer at all, despite repeated contacts, or what no further answer I can explain is we got an answer that was a non-answer, said we'll get back to you, and then um, we um, politely asked, you know, sent a polite reminder, and we had no further response. So uh, not great in terms of uh, just the the overview of what happened. And this is just a few of the quotes from companies in terms of um, in response to our requests. So. Uh, they are commercial in confidence. Um, I have referred this to the relevant personnel in our company and we, sh we will not be providing you with copies of any self safety notices. Uh, we are unable to fulfill your request, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that they are commercial in confidence. So um, where does that leave us? <laughs> I'd say we don't really know the size of the iceberg that's not visible um, at this point. So it makes it very difficult in terms of knowing how many safety advisories did Australia put out. In comparison, these letters, I have to say, are on the website of the other regulators, the other three that are currently in our data set, and also the fourth Denmark that we're still going to be joining with the data set. So the um, commercial in confidence is rather odd when um, this is something that has gone out potentially to thousands of doctors or and to pharmacists often. So one what are the implications? Australia appears to be an outlier in terms of sending out a lot less safety alerts. Is it? We can't really say for sure at this point. But there is a point in terms of should that safety information actually be somewhere public where even if one letter has come gone out five years ago, that drug is still being prescribed. If these drugs are still, the large majority of these drugs are still on the market, um, don't prescribers and dispensers and users actually need to have the possibility of continuing to access that uh, information. So I would say that this is an indication of an area where there's a need for policy change. And so I wanted to just conclude here by giving you an overview. So I've given you all these complicated um, different components of the project and give you a bit of an overview of how do they fit together in terms of how various parts of them inform the other parts. 
And the ones that are marked in blue are the ones where Australia has the lead within this um, um, several country um, project. The ones in green are the ones that the um, Canadian uh, team has in lead. And my co-lead, Colin, Dor Colin Dormuth, is part of CNODES, which is the uh, part, part, a national Canadian uh, drug safety and effectiveness network. And so I wanted to stop to conclude with this final darker blue um, uh, box at the bottom, which we're both contributing um, primarily to. And that is to say, okay, where do we go with these results in the end in terms of how can we try to uh, improve the um, improve the effectiveness or uh, to look at where uh, advisories are more or less effective and provide that information back to regulators and other information providers. So really, how can we come from these research results and contribute to better protection of public health in terms of the characteristics of advisories associated with a shift in prescribing or other healthcare use and a shift in awareness and perhaps attitudes to the uh, to the safety concern what kinds of communication methods so are there things that are consistent as well with what we know with communication theory that might be helpful and which policies are contributing to um, a, a better overall warning system so what we have um, promised as, a, as an outcome of, the, of the, this research project is to develop a checklist for advisories coming out of the main uh, kind of components of things that we've found to be effective that um, both might be used by regulators or might be used by others who are looking at how to convey safety information to prescribers and the public, and also to see, um, out of our experience with assessment, um, what kinds of tools might be used for assessment. So for instance, um, are there certain things that we can say out of looking at uh, the adverse drug reaction reporting that might be a, a rapid assessment tools that regulators might be able to use to evaluate the outcomes of a safety warning? So. Anyway, that's, I'll end on this point, and then I think we can go to the interesting part of this, which is uh, what your thoughts might be on, on uh, these safety warnings and uh, some of these next steps. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara, very much. Um, so I'm Roger Sexton. I'm a country GP from South Australia and on the NPS board and a past uh, member of the PBAC, which is a very interesting period of my life. But Barbara, thanks very much for all of that. I, I mean, for me, that's raised a huge number of questions. A really interesting presentation from all of you. I think it'd be good, perhaps at this point, to um, open up the discussion. I'm sure you've got a few questions like I have. And um, so let's start with some questions. Michael. John Dowden from Australian Prescriber. Um, congratulations to the team. I mean, so you've got a lifetime of work there. Uh, <laughs> the um, uh, I might be about to give you some more. Um, the, I guess it's a competing interest, uh, Australian Prescriber distributed the Adverse Drug Reactions Bulletin and then Medicine Safety Update for many years. 
Um, now, in that form of communication, and we saw from your research that Australia mainly relies on the bulletin to get safety messages out. Now, back in the day, we knew we were sending that to 50,000 health professionals. Uh, but now we're in the digital era, you would have to go to the TGA website and find that information. So it would be interesting in your time series analysis whether there was a change in the effectiveness or the dissemination of safety information from the old passive sending material out to uh, having it available digitally. And another hypothesis, which probably could be debunked very quickly, um, would be, is there a correlation between the rate of advisories and the funding of the regulator? So in terms of correlation between the rate of advisories and the funding of regulator, you mean a regulator that has less funding would be sending out less advisories? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's an interesting, I mean, that's a bit of, so there's a mix, you know, I think there's a point that the TGA has a lot less resources available than um, the US FDA or the European Medicines Agency, no comparison. Um, so there is certainly that side, which is how much the regulator is, get, is funded. Do they have the resources to um, actually respond to emergent safety concerns in the same way? And then there's the other side, which is, are they hampered by the fact that um, they're getting a lot of their funding from industry? There's been a lot of, in Canada, I can say there's been a lot of controversy over the regulators' um, funding being shifted in the mid-90s from being entirely based on tax revenues to now being based on licensing fees. I think about a half of the funding is on licensing fees because of a concern that, um, and in fact, a concern that, that's been reflected in some of the um, um, statements that have come out of Health Canada as well, that the client then becomes, the industry it becomes seen as the client rather than the public being seen as the client. I answer your other question. I don't know whether um, having something on a website that someone has to go to, to know to go to, is more or less effective. You know, it's out there, but it's actually, uh, it's uh, less of a push than having something that a professional receives that even if they didn't know to be interested in a safety concern, it might, they, they would see information about it uh, when they're reading something that uh, they're reading as a source of information for other reasons. So it's an interesting question, that one. It might have reduced the effectiveness rather than increased it. I'm Margaret Wilson from the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Um, and very interesting talk, and I'd love to talk to you afterwards as well. I just wanted to follow up a little bit on um, having the information on the website versus being sent out in published form. We do send out um, information to the different colleges and uh, uh, stakeholder groups such as pharmacists and um, nursing associations um, as well as publishing it on the website. So it isn't just stuck up there um, passively. We do try and disseminate it to 
the prescribers as well. Um, Barbara, um, it seems to me like the onus is on the pharmaceutical company to prove that their drug is safe once it's released into the marketplace and to, to undertake post-market research or at least fund that to ensure that it's, it is um, safe to use. Um, but then we have that issue that you raised that we then necessarily may not believe the results if there's a potential conflict of interest, commercial conflict of interest. So do you think there is a model where they could um, fund research, post-market research, um, in a way where it, um, we would be able to trust the results and there wouldn't be a commercial conflict of interest? So I would think, yes, <laughs> the, you know, that models both, uh, there's, it's even been recommended for pre-market research that, that there is, in terms of the design of the trials, that there's a conflict of interest between the commercial need to get a drug on the market and having the best possible science in terms of the results. Uh, I think for post-market, uh, that asking companies to put, to, you know, to fund a general fund, uh, that might be, they might put the amount of funding into that fund that was consistent, you know, consistent with uh, some proportion of sales of their products, and then have that general fund be managed independently would be the answer in terms, particularly post-market um, studies. Like I have, an, I have another uh, slide, an, another presentation where I showed photos of my grandchildren and say, well, am I actually going to be uh, giving an unbiased, independent, um, you know, kind of overview of, of the pros and cons of those particular children? No, of course not. And you also can't expect that a company that has put a huge amount of money into getting a drug to market and that is actually experiencing good sales is then going to have an incentive to try to find a reason for those sales to be reduced. I think that there is, um, I mean, I've only looked at it in specific areas where you can see, yeah, you can look at the, the oral contraceptives and the relative venous thromboembolic risks, for instance, of different forms where you can see a very clear pattern, but um, I mean, there's a range of areas, you probably know it, um, better than I do, but I think that there is a need to be attentive to who is funding the research and that um, in some cases the studies that regulators have actually asked the sponsors to carry out, you know, the methods that are used are um, inconsistent with uh, best standards in pharmacoepidemiology we have a lot more standards, like we have more rigorous standards for pre-market trials than we have for post-market trials, which I think is a problem with that whole model that um, Alice has mentioned in terms of the life cycle model and depending more on the post-market studies. I mean, I'd be interested in what other people's thoughts. There is, um, you know, with new legislation coming through for um, accelerated and uh, provisional approvals, a lot of the what has traditionally felt fallen into the pre-market space for drug research will fall into a post-market space, and that's a really big issue for us. We are gearing up to deal with it, um, and yeah, we're reliant often on um, people telling us what the best way to do that is, 
Um, so that's where having links to academia is really helpful. I'm Elspeth Kay, I'm the Director of the Risk Management Plan Evaluation Section at the TGA. Um, so I guess I'd just add that there is a, a fair bit of regulatory cooperation as well. So certainly in evaluating risk management plans, we're often seeing those at a point where the EMA has already at least done a first pass over the initial version of an RMP. We're often looking at drugs where um, sponsors have been working with an international regulator for a long time to develop their clinical trial program and also to design the post-market studies that will be required. We're a small regulator and we have to be fairly nimble and, and efficient about the way that we do our work and we do look very much to those well-resourced um, regulators um, and we're often reliant on the negotiations that have taken place already between a, a multinational sponsor and a, a large regulator and have often more limited opportunity to influence the way that, that studies are conducted. But certainly where there is something being done specifically in Australia, we have to sort of carry the load of that. And as Maggie says, we, we do need to sort of tap into expertise to ensure that we're doing that in the most effective way possible and it's something that I think we can continue to work on. Any further questions? Um, thank you so much for that update. And I think, um, do you imagine that if um, marketing authority was actually contingent on the RMP and what's done in the RMP, uh, would that change things for you? Um, so, for instance, if there's a safety advisory coming out about a particular class or a medicine, um, and since the RMP is a living document, the, you know, the sponsor could decide at that point that they would have to conduct a, I don't know, a trial or a, some kind of risk minimisation strategies and then that would be contingent on their ongoing uh, you know, marketing access. Would that change things? Um, Maybe might be able to have some input. So maybe from a signal investigation unit um, and who tend to be involved in the, the issues that arise once a product is on the market um, and would be negotiating things like dear healthcare professional letters or other risk mitigation activities once a product is on the market. Certainly when we're looking at an RMP for the purposes of approval, um, at times the, the approval of the drug can, is, is often contingent on things that are negotiated within the RMP. So um, a delegate at the TGA might only feel comfortable if certain strict controls are put on the supply of a medicine. In the post-market space, um, I guess there have been instances of that. Um, but they're few and far between, and I'm not sure if having a bigger stick would help. We have got new powers um, just recently with the opening of the provisional approval pathway. That's given us new powers to impose um, um, or to narrow the indications for a product and impose particular activities on a, a sponsor. Um, but I don't know that we've had much opportunity to use those yet. Yes, and I don't want to commandeer your panel. Um, just to add that... In terms of having post -market, mandated post-market studies, um, what we've seen with the FDA is that when those studies have been mandated, only you know, a proportion of them have actually been completed, either because they've gone over a certain time frame or the population exposure hasn't actually reached the point that would allow a robust statistical analysis. And you know, that's in America. Australia is a fraction of the population. Um, would we be able to get reasonable number of people participating in trials post-market. Um, I think that remains to be seen. I'm, I'm Hashim, one of the medical officers in TGA. 
Um, so coming on, uh, I agree with the post-market studies are not well structured and actually we need head-to-head uh, -head trials. Well, like, you know, we have a lot of drugs coming up in the same class for the treatment of the same, same patient population, but what we don't have is effectiveness studies, especially with the head-to-head -head comparison and also with safety. Um, so, and also, you know, I, I think the absolute risk is always a major factor when you are putting out safety uh, alerts. Um, I, I, I agree with the relative risk, but the absolute risk uh, has to be considered with every drug when, you, when you're talking about safety adverse effects. And so with the previous question, uh, when you asked for the comment uh, on clinical, from a clinical perspective, when you, when you look for the adverse effects, I think when, the, when a drug is first in the market, that's when the adverse effects are really considered into uh, taken into account and it's really well communicated when it's in the PI. Um, and, the, and the further PI changes, I'm really concerned whether it's really communicated to the prescriber in, in, the, in an adequate way. Um, and from in the, when I was working in the hospital, it's mainly the therapeutic guidelines and MIMS, which are the sources when you refer for, um, when you, before you're prescribing. And in the MIMS, we all know that there's an abbreviated PI, but um, when there's a new safety alert, I think this needs to be a system of, you know, like a pop-up or something, you know, coming up in the MIMS of therapeutic guidelines when you're looking for, uh, before you prescribe a medicine. Barbara, can I just ask you a question around uh, advisories, their, their wording, their formatting, and how they're presented. Is there, are there jurisdictional differences in how the messages are actually visually presented to professionals? I think we observe differences, but we're looking at 2007 to 2016, and I think there has been increasing interest on the part of regulators about how to format them and how to communicate, and they're probably uh, definitely improving compared to the beginning of our data set. Um, so some, from what I know, uh, you know, some jurisdictions do... Most of them have some internal and external policies about how to communicate. Most of those I've seen have been around the director health professional communications where they're very, you know, the regulators that do have policies um, about how those are written, they do have very clear instructions about how to lay them out. But I think there's, you know, words are very uh, tricky things to manipulate and so kind of uh, the communication and the risk communication effectiveness um, is a part of the study that I think is quite interesting in terms of how well are they communicated, how clear are they. Um, I know the FDA has kind of said, you know, there have been recommendations that they should be user-tested before these messages go out. I don't know how often that actually happens. Yes, we're in a time-poor, convenience-seeking world, aren't yeah. we? And uh, the shorter the advisory, the better, really, for many people. Yeah. But, uh, well, I just, uh, just a quick comment. It's, I think just recently the FDA actually finalised that guidance around BHPCs and they've actually taken out the user testing statement because it was so controversial with, with the industry. And interestingly, just, you know, the note that we did see those 70 concordant situations, we haven't actually ascertained whether those are actually all sending the same message to the prescriber, and that's really important as well. Well, we've got about two minutes to go, so um, I might take the liberty of trying to summarise a few points, but I found this presentation extremely interesting, and I hope you all have too. Um, it raises lots of questions, doesn't it? I think, um, as J uh, John said, there's plenty of work to go on this, and you've raised your own questions about the future. I've been interested in what you regard as utopia in this world. I've been interested to hear your view about that. Um, but certainly things like um, 
impact of the internet and the media on uh, advisories. We probably haven't touched on that, but that raises a lot of issues, doesn't it? We know how important they can be. And the around communication, the assumption everybody reads these things, you put out an advisory, are they actually read? Well, in a, in a busy clinical world, they can be really, really quite difficult. Um, again, as we mentioned, the, how the regulators are resourced can be very... Uh, you wonder how things go in third world countries, how, um, how these things get out there, if at all. So I think your uh, desire to extend your database to other countries is really important, and it, um, I'm sure that'll be a very interesting part of the exercise. So, I mean, with lots of things to talk about, I admit plenty more work to do. Um, I just encourage, on behalf of everybody here, to encourage you in your work and to, uh, and to continue to bring these uh, things back to us, perhaps to hear about what's happening in two years' time at, at NMS 20 would be really, really interesting. So, Barbara, thank you very much to um, Daniela, to Alice and to Lucy. Uh, on behalf of everybody, thank you very much for a really interesting presentation and please join me in thanking you.